You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. I wrote Thurman a long letter, and I was going through a terrible trial, and I said, Doc, uh, I'm not sure what I should do next. Should I do a PhD, or should I go on to law school where I have some real interests? He basically told me I was like a little boy sitting on a Christmas tree with a lot of gifts and didn't know which one opened. And then, <laughs> then he said, but you must, and this famous word, you must wait and listen for the sound of the genuine that is within you. When you hear it, that will be your voice and that will be the voice of God. We hardly know the grief of our suffering, and certainly among black people, but it's true for all of us. As you think of the cosmic we and this universal moan, even creation is moaning. Why shouldn't we? This podcast explores the mystery of relatedness as an organizing principle of the universe and of our lives. We are trying to catch a glimpse of connections beyond color, continent, country, or kinship through science, mysticism, spirituality, and the creative arts. I'm Donnie Bryant. I'm Barbara Holmes, and this is The Cosmic We. We are delighted to have Dr. Walter Fluker with us today, a scholar a friend, a theological giant in the field. His resume is far too extensive to share here, but I do want you to know that he was born in Valden, Mississippi, in a section affectionately referred to as Frog Bottom. Near his hometown is a town where Fannie Lou Hamer sustained that merciless beating. Also nearby, is the place where Oprah Winfrey grew up. Dr. Fluker is a UCC minister, served as a chaplain in the Army and for universities, graduated from Trinity College in philosophy and biblical studies, received his Master's of Divinity from Garrett Evangelical, and his PhD from Boston University. He has served as professor at Vanderbilt, Colgate Rochester Crozer Divinity, Morehouse, and Boston University, his alma mater. Hello, Dr. Fluker. Hello. So glad to see you. I'm so glad to see you and to be seen. I think the last time we were together was at the opening of the first book in the Thurman Paper series. I looked around and all five were finished. It was (laughs) amazing. Tell Mm. us a little bit about your history Tell us about how you grew up and what it was like in Valden, Mississippi. Well, I was born in Vaden, Mississippi. Vaden, thank Mm -hmm. you for that correction. And it was uh, near Winona in Mississippi. Everything is near some other big town. And Winona was the place where most uh, of the migrants going north, points north, uh, were able to take the train north. And in 1956, my daddy took that train running from Mr. Johan and the plantation economy of uh, Mississippi. Mm. 
and uh, sent for uh, his children, uh, my brother, B, Beatrice, and my mom, Zeti, uh, to meet with my two older sisters who had already escaped. <laughs> and so I took the city of New Orleans, that train that has carried many a thousands, to Chicago. And I grew up on the south side of Chicago in a neighborhood that Oscar Brown Jr. used to say that where the people don't live so good, <laughs> where the rooms are small and the buildings are made of wood. And we were members of a little storefront church, uh, Centennial Missionary Baptist Church. And I'm still ordained Baptist, uh, but I was, uh, I grew up in that small storefront church where people would stand up and give their testimony and my mother's testimony each Tuesday night, no matter what we were doing, she would make us go to church and we would hear this litany, which was hers. I just rose to give you my testimony. The Lord has been good to me. He's brought me from a mighty long way, et cetera, et cetera. And finally, she said, and Lord is hard raising these children but I placed them in the hands of the Lord. And I know that you are able to keep them from falling. That was my mama. And wow. she was an usher. I, I write about it, about her in the book, The Ground is Shifted, but she was a arthritic, illiterate, but she knew Jesus uh, in the pardon of her sins. <laughs> <laughs> Zeddy Fluker. And my daddy was not a churchgoer. Uh, I think it was mainly because of uh, the kind of respectability associated with going to church on Sunday. He'd, he'd need a suit and he'd have to act proper and all that stuff. And that wasn't daddy's way of being in the world. He was a very wonderfully beautiful human being. I mean, physically and a, a, a personality wise, just very, very wonderful person, quiet often. And uh, both mom and dad were certainly uh, of African descent, but there is a strong uh, Choctaw uh, uh, Native American vein in our family. Uh, there's a little town in the northeast corner of Louisiana. Its name is Fluker. Hmm. Really? And <laughs> <laughs> you get around. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was born about two hours from there, you know, driving. Uh, but I'm I'm sure I'm convinced that that is the plantation out of which many of the flukers whom you'll meet around the country uh, had their origins in this plantation economy. Hmm. Wow. My goodness. <laughs> you... Um, before we move away from the ancestors and the elders, mm -hmm. I want to ask you about your grandmother. Oh, Lord. Mm -hmm. Your grandmother, Ma, mm -hmm. you mentioned, was a medicine woman. Mm -hmm. Born with the veil, just like Howard Thurman. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And for those who don't know what that means, mm -hmm. it means you see to the other side. You can see things. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> her name, we called her uh, affectionately Mon. That's the way it's really pronounced because it's that pigeon of this Creole mixture in Louisiana, but Mon. And uh, Mon didn't uh, take any stuff off white people or black people or anybody. 
<laughs> she was fearless. And uh, my folks would always say the white folks called her a crazy nigger mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. she didn't take no stuff. Uh, there's a legend in the family, whether it's true or not, uh, they came to take our family's goods when my father was working on the Mississippi levee, when the levee broke. And uh, the boss man came to take away our goods, the refrigerator. We call it Frigidaire in Mississippi. Oh, take yeah. away the Frigidaire. <laughs> and, 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 and the cow. And they said mom walked out with her shotgun cocked, put her feet, uh, boot really, uh, on, on the fender of, of the truck and said, Mr. Waller, whatever his name was, but Waller is what I remember. Um, I can spend uh, the rest of my time in hell. How about you? <laughs> <laughs> she must have known my grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> well, those I, are my people. <laughs> I come from stock just like that. Oh, yeah. And Mo was a midwife. Uh, she took care of a lot of the medicinal needs of these uh, of the people, the residents in the area where my folks grew up. And most importantly, uh, as you mentioned, she she could see things. I have early memories of her being stern and sweet, if there's a combination. Uh, she smoked Paul Malls and she drank uh, whiskey out of the side of her mouth as she did Coca-Cola. Uh, (laughs) and uh but just a powerful image that uh remains with me at all times my mom and and my mother my father is very close to me as an ancestor but when i'm in most trouble my mother shows up and um I'm so glad I'm not bound by the Academy nowadays. I can always tell my story the way I like to tell it. But Free I at just, last. Yeah, Free at holl- last. As they say in the church, <laughs> hallelujah. hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but my, my, my mom and dad, they, they come to me in dreams and in vision. I've had visions of my mom. Uh, when I was being assaulted, because I grew up bullied. I grew up on the south side of Chicago. You have to understand that. I was smart. I I used to carry so many books, they'd laugh at me. Uh, sometimes I'd have books on my head and others <laughs> in my arm coming I, because I wanted to know things when I was young. And uh, it was just so, uh, it was untypical. There were other smart, smarter than I, smart people. But it just, you didn't show up in public doing that. So uh, I was bullied and uh, suffered through major gang violence, lost friends uh, in gang wars. I was not a gang member. I went to church. The church was my sanctuary. It was the place where we were able to live and breathe. But because of that history of violence and assault and being bullied, my folks always had a way of taking care of me, even though they were all so violently assaulted as uh, Southerners in this strange new urban environment for them. But they show up now uh, always as um, guides, 
and comforters. I'll give you one quick example. This is a podcast and I know you have time, but uh, I'm a chronic sufferer of gout. Okay. And so was my mom and it runs in the family. But once I had a huge problem with the, with the gout attack and I woke up and there was my mama and Miss Henrietta. That was her best friend. Both, <laughs> both were deceased by then, or whatever that means. But they were working on a tree. They were just showing me this tree and the bark of the tree. And that this would help my gout. I knew that's what it meant. So I went to a health food store uh, after that. And I asked about uh, remedies for gout and things associated with bark and trees. I've forgotten the name of the medicine. As I, boy, normally I know it. But I actually found some medicine there. Those are, And that's just one instance of the ways in which they show up. Uh, and they've helped me not just in the United States of America, but in travels all around the world. My mama, my daddy, and some other folks just show up. It's good to be crazy. It saves you from so many other things, from stilted reason. (laughs) I think that's the most sanity that we can adopt. I think the church has lost something when it lost its mysticism. It's, I mean, when you think about George Floyd and the newspaper saying, oh, look, he's talking to his dead mother. He thinks his mother. No, his mother... Mm. had crossed over earlier to mm. be there when he was ready to transition. He wasn't right. making it up or going crazy. She was standing there. I agree. I agree. There's such a different view of what church means when you've got that. Oh, Lord. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Can I say one or two other things? And I'll <laughs> sure. stop, I'll yeah, stop this trend. No, but, don't but, stop. But, don't stop. But listen, listen, listen. Um, I, I moved to Rochester in um, the late 80s, early early 90s. My family and I, Sharon, our two boys, they were very young now. And uh, I was going through this transformation. I had a deep sense. I was already thinking about doing something with Howard Thurman because I had met him and studied with him in the late 70s and did a dissertation on Thurman and King. But This was a little different. I had received a Mellon faculty fellowship at Harvard. I was teaching at Harvard. They were courting me. But Colgate Rochester showed up, and I went on there as dean of Black Church Studies. That's the context. But during this period, I was going through the, it was kind of like a breakthrough. So much agony associated with this, you should know. And one day, my family and I walk into a bookstore, and books had started talking to me by then. And I walk straight up to um, the counter and there is a a bookshelf that says, uh, buy this, Maladoma Patrice Somme of Water and Spirit. (laughs) spirit. I I purchased the book, make a long story short, read it all night. And I said, wherever he is, I got to find him. So I call, I pull out my little Rolodex, couldn't find him. After a long week's of searching for maladoma, I went into meditation and I got up, went to my bookshelf and there in my pile of notes, those little sticky notes that you Mm -hmm. think, 
I obviously I had picked up his number somewhere else <laughs> because it was his number, Maladoma. And I called him and I said, hello, may I speak to Maladoma Patrice Somme? He said, this is Maladoma. <laughs> And that that started a lifelong friendship. We're very good friends, but it was through Maladoma and then his wife, Sabonfu, that I was involved in a grief ritual on Cortez Island off Vancouver, British Columbia. And this island, all of these people from around the world were just going through these rituals. And on one evening, I'm making a very long story short, but one evening during what the Dagra people called the grief ritual, where we pay our debt to the ancestors through grief, through weeping and moaning, that universal moan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they told us, just just be free. And, you know, I'm I'm kind of colored. I'm not just black. I'm kind of colored. <laughs> I he love said, just that. be free. So, so uh, <laughs> they started playing the drum and... Sabonfu was hitting some kind of shaking instrument, and I just started getting down. I was nobody there. I'm the only African American, you should know, but I was just getting down. And all at once, out of nowhere, my father is there. Wow. And I fell to my knees and I cried. I said, Daddy, we miss you. He had died in 1984. I had performed a eulogy, but never mourned him. I was too busy being me. And I said, Daddy, we miss you. Mama misses you. B misses you. I just went through the whole family. And when I came to myself, all of the women had taken me to a corner in the room and they were rocking me. And this Japanese woman whispers in my ears, she says, you're only five years old. I didn't know what that meant then. It was years later. When I discovered when daddy left Mississippi in a hurry, he sent for us. Thanks be to God. Uh, I was five years old and I was still grieving my daddy's departure. And that was one of the most healing moments in my life. And he was real, more real than even in life, real. So uh, I have no doubt that uh, ancestors not only exist, but they, they are present for us. They come to us in moments of great need and trial, and they also celebrate life's moments with us. They, they want to celebrate with us. And I'm thankful, I mentioned Maladoma, I'm thankful that it was he who introduced me to this grief ritual, which I have revised, and I use it often in workshops, especially with young Black males, because there's so much grief. Tell us a little bit about that ritual. Yeah, at Morehouse College, I was asked to become the uh, head of the uh, leadership center, or founder of the leadership center at Morehouse College. And so I had a laboratory where I could work things. And so these young men would uh, come in a pre-college program. And what we would do, the way I revised it, was to uh, play with the idea of Plato's allegory of the cave. And they'd, mm. they'd get used to this and all that. But they would be in a room where they could anonymously speak their truth mm. and share their grief. So someone else would say, I stand on behalf of my brother Climb." 
and he was raped when he was three years old, and he's still struggling through this. And someone would speak on behalf of the other. And at the end, we would go through our grief ritual in front of the shrine of Howard Thurman at Morehouse College, if you've ever been on the campus, between Thurman and King. And they would call out any name they wanted to name themselves while they were grieving. But everybody, uh, you didn't escape the moment of the deep emotion. And I learned over time, especially when I did this with South African uh, young people, uh, that I always needed a therapist, a clinical person on hand and available to make referrals because we hardly know the grief of our suffering. And certainly among black people, but it's true for all of us as you think of the cosmic we and this universal moan, even creation is moaning. Why shouldn't we? You know. So that's that's the backdrop. Doctor Fluker, it's just I'm uh, uh, you know for me I'm in I'm in all just receiving all of your wisdom. But you mentioned the influence of some of the ancestors, and I, from what I understand, and you can help us understand this, but Dr. Uh, Thurman's grandmother had great influence in his life and much of his perspective and much of how he viewed the world and his spirituality. Could you speak a little bit about that and how you understand how his forefathers, and particularly his grandmother, like your grandmother, had mm-hmm. an influence on in his life? Nancy Ambrose. Grandma Nancy, anchor person, he called her, the anchor. Uh, I think she was the portal into the universe for young Howard. Uh, His mom was very important. Mother struggled a lot, as many women do, trying to raise children, et cetera, et cetera. But this Grandma Nancy, she was another person whom Thurman, being always careful to stay within the confines of quote-unquote rationality, and a certain kind of respectability that he was a man of his time. He needed to use this language and always showed the larger culture that he was as smart as they were. I don't think this was his deep personal need, but he knew he only had certain language signs and symbols where he could project this. But if you dig deep into his experience with Grandma Nancy, uh, you begin to see that this was a woman who had experienced real travail. She never talked about the Mosley plantation. Thurman says that she kept this for herself, though she would visit once a year and she'd take young Howard with her. We've now traced the roots uh, into South Carolina. And of course, uh, uh, Carolina is a major port for slaves. And we believe that Nancy was probably more associated with the Gullah people. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. B is shaking her hand Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and and so these Africanisms were and still are so much a part of the culture. Uh, I'm thinking about LaRonda's uh, Manigault Bryant's book, Walking with the Dead. She talks about this, this, this experience. But so you have this kind of background with Grandma Nancy. And you also have Thurman in a community 
of not just formerly enslaved Africans, but people who had African retentions. When he's talking about community, he's not talking about some abstract conversation on the blackboard. These people were in relation so that when one person suffered, they all suffered. He talks about the experience of his father's funeral and the death of his father, how all the community came together to care for him. And when they laid him out on the winding board, as these old traditions say, uh, people came to visit, they would leave food. Uh, but this is a huge piece in Thurman's formation so that by the time you hear him give you a hint, he gives you a lot of hints. When he's in Boston in 1958 and he says, I went to the mirror and uh, Martin's face came before me. This is in 1958. King has just been stabbed by this mentally ill woman and he's at the Harlem Hospital. I don't know if Thurman knew this yet. But Thurman says he also noticed that there were some marks on his ears uh, where they had removed the veil. Uh, what is that? The amniotic veil that, yeah. that, you know, and this is certainly a tradition longstanding among sh uh, shamans in different cultures, in the, even in Siberian cultures, that the people know that when you're born with this veil <laughs> on your face that uh, you'll see things, but they remove it because they don't want you to get confused because you're living in two worlds. And part of Thurman's work, therefore, I think has to be interpreted in light of these retentions, this path. Now I'm scooting over years, but all through his writings, there are places where he lets you know that he's into something else. A woman in Iowa he visits, who gives him a word. He said he just had to see her because he'd heard so much about her. And when she finishes, this is an illiterate woman, by the way, when she finishes, she gives him a word that Thurman traces back to Plotinus. <laughs> wow, wow. <laughs> so this is the universe that he's a part, but he's also a modernist. And in many ways, a, modern, a modernist liberal. So his theological language is more in alignment with uh, modernism, but he is also speaking out of a well that uh, isn't given public notice with Thurman. Wow. I think that's enough to say about that um, given time, but there's so much. And Anthony Sean Neal, I was trying to remember his name, is a young scholar in Mississippi, Mississippi State University, uh, who is doing this kind of work his, one of his books is called Fragmented Love, but he traces uh, Thurman's lineage through, his spiritual lineage through Grandma Nancy. And uh, I think there ought to be some other work uh, that's done there uh, around the kind of deep spirituality that is also guiding him. Yeah, absolutely. You said you met him in the 70s. What was the occasion that you met Howard Thurman? I was so gifted. I'm kind of like the Black Forest Gump. You know, I just show up and I don't know what I'm doing. Honestly, I just show up. I don't so, believe that for a minute. <laughs> but, but one of the best things that ever happened to me, I met a young woman when I started seminary uh, who was my next door neighbor. And uh, she was just so 
gorgeous. It took the breath out of me when I first met her. It really did. And she was my next door neighbor. And one day, after two years, she finally invited me over to her apartment. And there in her apartment was a big broadside that says, as long as a man has a dream in his heart, he cannot lose the significance of living. Mm -hmm. That young woman and I be married 40 years uh, this month. That was Sharon Watson. She was working on her PhD at Northwestern. I was entering seminary. And my Lord, uh, that Howard Thurman was her godfather. I had read Thurman earlier. And it's just, um, I had read Thurman earlier when I was a chaplain's assistant. But I had no idea of where my life was leading me. And so it was through the Watsons, Sharon's parents, who were very distinguished members of the Atlanta community. I really married way up. And um, that I first had uh, uh, the chance to meet Howard and Sue Bailey Thurman in their living room. And it was just, oh God, he was so funny. All I can remember is that they were so funny. They laughed at everything. There wasn't anything off the table that they wouldn't laugh at. <laughs> you, don't find, get, <laughs> you don't get that impression when you hear him talking on YouTube. Oh, God, he was hilarious. Everything was funny to him. And I shared with a group yesterday, most great spiritual teachers, leaders are laughing. A, a sure sign. Because they're laughing at the fragility of our finitude and how we take ourselves so seriously. And Thurman, Tutu, Dalai Lama, watch them, you know, (laughs) just laughing their heads off. (laughs) Anyway, and that was my experience of meeting Thurman. And later I was invited to study with him as a group of students organized by Luther E. Smith and others who were meeting with Thurman during those days. And I was the first, uh, ours was the first cohort of six men and four women, all devoted to the religious life. And we sat with Thurman for an entire week. And it was life-changing. I'm, that's not even the word for me, but no one spent that kind of time with Howard Thurman and just walked away and flubbed their hand. Uh, we begged him to stay. We're in San Francisco. <laughs> And we begged him at the end, can we stay? We'll clean, we'll cook. <laughs> and and he spat out his coffee laughing at us. It was so funny. <laughs> Have you ever written about that time? I did something for Gregory Ellison's, but it was short. So I'm doing some memoirs now. Oh, good. Uh, and that's why some of this stuff is fresh for me, because I've forgotten most of these things. But Thurman... Um, I started writing him, right? And I was in seminary. I didn't really want to be a preacher. I got tired of, the, again, these abstract theological conversations. But the, I'd make my living off that. I didn't know that. I, that's how I'd make my living. <laughs> but anyway, but I had the, the restlessness of many seminarians. And I wrote Thurman a long letter. And I was going through a terrible trial. Uh, but I wrote him a long letter. And I said, Doc, uh I'm not sure what I should do next. Should I do a PhD or should I go on to law school where I have some real interest? And he wrote me back in what seemed like a millennium, hand-delivered 
uh, letter to me. It was hand-delivered, written in his hand, and with doodles all in the margins. You know, (laughs) (laughs) He's laughing the whole time. And hieroglyphics, the language was like hieroglyphics. But I read through it, and very quickly, uh, he basically told me I was like a little boy sitting on a Christmas tree with a lot of gifts and didn't know which one opened. Wow. And and then, <laughs> then he said, but you must, and this famous word that you now see broadcast everywhere because of Oprah Winfrey's interest in it, you must wait and listen for the sound of the genuine that is within you. When you hear it, that will be your voice and that will be the voice of God. I had no idea what he meant, but it just felt good to write. (laughs) And one mailing day later, I get three letters in the mail. The first two, I can't even tell you about. I'll write about it when I go and be with the ancestors. But the first two were letters asking for forgiveness. And oh, I cried, I cried. And the last one was a letter of acceptance from Boston University. I was so sure about Boston University. I had no doubt in my mind. I left with my parents' little gift of $115. They wanted to buy me a a robe. I'd just been ordained. I said, no, I could use this money. (laughs) And and everything, everything uh, just just fell in place. Uh, And I had no idea that I'd be going to Boston two years later, uh, Thurman would pass on him. A year and a half later, he'd pass on. And Sue Bailey Thurman would send the bulk of his materials to Boston University. And so I had opportunity to go into the papers even before they were cataloged to write a dissertation. I was only going to write a dissertation on Thurman, but my advisor, bless his heart, uh, told me that I'd have to do it on Thurman and King because there was not enough in Thurman to justify a dissertation. I knew differently, but I wanted the PhD, you know, I'd invested all. So I just wrote two, effectively, two dissertations. <laughs> a wise decision, Dr. Blucher. <laughs> oh, Lord, many are the troubles of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him yes. or her out of them all. <laughs> Is there life after doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event, Courage and Resilience, an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org courage. Well, Dr. Fluke, I, I'm, I almost wanted just for you to have you elaborate a little more on this idea of silence and listening to that inner voice. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And from what I understand that Dr. Thurman had these habits of stillness mm. that, uh, that oftentimes we don't hear about or we don't necessarily mm. know. Um, and so I wanted to see if you can elaborate a little bit more uh, about your insights about his habits of stillness and, and how he practiced, uh, you know, silence in order to hear. Listen to this, and you may have heard it before. He, it shows up in a lot of his uh, public addresses. In quietness and in confidence shall be your strength. Long before you were born, God was at work creating the worlds of nature, people, and things. God is not finished with creation. God is not finished with you. And he goes on and on. So this notion of quiet, I think, was native to Thurman's personality or indigenous to his, his way of being in the world. He needed quiet. He tells you that in his autobiography. And sometimes life's challenges push you into stillness. So this young man who's had a really, uh, I think, traumatic uh, experience growing up, not just with his father's death, which is the major piece, but he tells you that he, he was not welcome to games by the other kids that he he was not uh, uh he didn't get the company of the young women he was awkward he said so even his he said when he got nervous his right toe would rub against his left heel so he needed quietness and a place and this comes up in his language later a place that he could call his own it's a strange freedom to run up and down the streets of other minds where no salutation greets and there's no place to call your own. And so silence for Thurman is his entree into a space that he could call his own. And it's the indwelling space for many of us in who study Thurman, it's the indwelling space of, of what could be called, he calls it presence, uh, but it's divine intelligence. It's knowing. It's very intimate knowing, because one is both, but one both knows and is known. And for Thurman, it's most important to be known. You know, <laughs> what what does it feel like to be a young black man at the turn of the twentieth century in Daytona Beach, Florida, where nobody knows your name? <laughs> and and to 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 have the stillness of the Halifax River to watch the raging storm spread across the Atlantic and to find solace in an old oak tree where he goes to commune. And he's talking to the tree. I, I laugh always when I say, but he, this is a real conversation. And so silence for Thurman is not the absence of noise. And I think most of us know this. It's not the absence because he finds it in the storm. It's, 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 it's more akin to uh, what many ancient myths and philosophies refer to as the abyss or the void. There's this old in existence. <laughs> this, this <laughs> I don't want to go black hole. I don't know enough about that. But there's, there's something 
in existence that is necessary for life to be generated. And so Thurman was, I think, this is a fluker interpretation, I think he was looking for this thing which he experienced within himself but was also manifested in many ways in uh, what he eschewed but nonetheless metaphysical terms. It's this dimension, much like the Buddhist coin that says the utility of a bowl is its emptiness. So to find this, this, so this steel point, Merton loved to call it the centering moment, the, the steel point. He called it, and that Le Pont de Verge, I know I'm getting the French wrong, but it's really the virgin point. It's that which is untested. Yeah, mm-hmm. that which is untested. And uh, uh, so experience means that you, you, you kind of get some on you. If you show up in the world and <laughs> and you have experience. And so, so the, uh, his interpretation of the Garden of Eden, you see it in his book, The Search for Common Ground. Adam and Eve, when they receive knowledge, they get kicked out of the garden because they've been untested before then. He gives a psychological, a kind of psychocultural interpretation of this myth, and they're kicked out of the garden. And when they return, there's a huge angel there with a flaming sword. Thurman uses the imagery of George Fox, you know, the angel with a flaming sword. But it's this this angel, if you get by this angel, one cannot pass this angel with the flame. Because you know what the sword is going to do. It's going to dismember you, cut you asunder. And so the only way one returns to paradise lost after innocence, is the quest Thurman calls for goodness or wholeness or harmony. So one can never be innocent again, which is, I'm referencing this void, so to speak, and and life becoming integrated and whole. One must pass this. And he said, you cannot lay it upon that altar without the fluid area of your consent. Mm. One chooses. So, so there's no substitute uh, savior there. There's nobody there going to save you. You got the angel to deal with. And uh, when I work with young brothers and sisters, I say, you're going to get your ass jacked up if you go <laughs> see the angel. If you go past the angel. Uh, you know, and, but, but that's, what, that's what spiritual maturity is about because this doesn't happen once for those who dare to make that journey. This is, you don't get saved one time and then you fix. No, no, no. Uh, this is, you got to deal with the, you got to tussle uh, with the angel. And this angel is so much a part of your becoming. And you cannot avoid it for Thurman. Wow. Can I try to interpret that in the Donnie Bryan interpretation? Because that was so <laughs> real and deep. So Dr. Fuga, correct uh, me. Bryan and I, just want, interpretation. I, I want to do this for people who, because what you said was so weighty and so heavy, and I want to try to just rephrase it and correct if I'm wrong. So are you saying that for much of Thurman's work and understanding is that the journey to wholeness, the pathway mm. to, to becoming, the reality of life, or the spiritual transformation, the spiritual journey is a pathway that has to go through suffering, darkness. It's the most dominant theme in all of Thurman's thought. 
You cannot read Thurman or read his life or his work without dealing. Suffering is a discipline of the spirit for Thurman. And so tragedy, uh, the exigencies of existence for Thurman are given. And if you want to get home, uh, you got to pass this angel. Well, you know, if you're preaching, Barbara, you could do something yes. with that, couldn't you? <laughs> I sure could. That will preach. That, that will oh, preach. Lord. That'll oh, preach. Lord. That'll yeah, preach. This is not a friendly. Wow. I think sometimes it's associated with Uriel. There's a huge uh, portrait. I've forgotten the American artist, but you might find it's Uriel taking a rest. This uh, huge portrait is also at the Boston University Gottlieb Center, uh, where you have this angel, but he's there with his sword. And I would be there going through the papers and there was Uriel behind me. And uh, I became more and more aware when I really delved into the Quaker thought and George Fox, what Thurman was doing with this imagery. Uh, But for him, it's precisely that, that one is dismembered in order to be remembered. When I do ethical leadership training, I talk about remembering, retelling, and reliving one's story. But you cannot be remembered until you acknowledge the dismemberment uh, of your being. And and life will uh, dismember you if you show up here on the planet with the rest of us. And that's why lament and grieving mm. is, should be so much a part of our journey. We don't acknowledge Mm. that we are being dismembered as we Mm. go. Mm. Mm. And I want to get home so badly, Barbara. Me too. Yeah, I just want to get home. (laughs) You know, I just want to get home. Maladoma tickles me. He says, if you want to get home, you got to give somebody a ride. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) Yeah, Yeah. because we don't get home alone. Mm. We get home together. I'm going to stop after this because I know you all have livings, but I had another thought that I had to tell you. I, I, I told you I'm uh, kind of like Forrest Gump. Honestly, that's a good analogy for me. I show up in South Africa with these students, uh, Oprah Winfrey scholars. Miss uh, Winfrey gave us a lot of money to take these young men. They were Morehouse men at that point. But we'd have co-eds by the time we built a program, made sure we put women and everybody else in there. But at this first, we were taking these young men and I met Baba Cradle Muchwa. If that's not a name that you know, you should know. At some point, Baba means Papa. Right. Cradle Muchwa. Zulu shaman. He passed this past year. One of the most important figures in this spiritual, African spirituality, but Everybody all over the world would come and see Baba. I didn't know who I was meeting. So uh, after I met him, I could pick it up, right? And I said, I'd like to spend some time with you. He said, well, let me know when you're ready, Prof. And I make this journey to see him while I'm there. And I meet him on this little, in a little shanty. Mind me, the places in Mississippi, they had the little chickens all over the yard. And I'm stepping over chickens trying to get in. And I go and sit down. His wife comes out. And she was very British in protocol. She said, you care for tea, Prof? 
I said, oh, yeah, but I'm looking at this wood-burning stove right in the middle of the room. <laughs> and there are all these strange pieces of art. Mm. Uh, deep iconographic things like space people, stuff like that. I, I didn't know what I... And then Baba comes out, but unlike the time I met him, in all of his shamanistic gear. Mm. And I said, he, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, 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 so what I got myself in. <laughs> and boy, do you know, he said, I said, he said, how, well, how can I help you, Prof? And a dream immediately shot into my mind that I had early in the 90s of chasing a little creature into a cave. I had this strange dream that troubled me for all this time. So I, I told him about the dream. He said, oh, I know that little man. <laughs> he said, I know him. And he told me his name. Wow. <laughs> now, now he, he could have been just pulling my leg, but I'm so glad he did because uh, he named for me this journey. I, I was trying to get into the cave to catch this guy. And I learned later that this cave is the domain of a lot of these folks. They go to the caves, the cave of the heart, you know. Mm -hmm. but, but this cave is where so much of this work is done. So when I look for the place nowadays that I call my own, I go to the cave. Mm -hmm. and, and I sit there in silence and I wait and listen. To receive whatever I need, don't I, doesn't every now and then it comes, <laughs> but I'll sit and I'll wait in the cave because I think that we have so much more that is available to us beyond the confines of institutionalized religion and faith. Oh. There's so much more that's being offered to us if we'd only dare let go. And, and let the stream take us where it will. You know, but we're so frightened that we might get lost or we might not be saved. And we're already lost and not saved. So that's why. <laughs> <laughs> and clutching at nothing. <laughs> that's all I got, y'all. I know that's uh Oh my goodness, this has ways. been so rich. So powerful. Mm. Dr. Fluker. It Who is are I. You? It is it is I. Be not afraid. <laughs> I mean, I'm a gullible woman from South Carolina. Yeah. And I just have such affinity mm. with everything you've been talking about. Yeah, you know those trees, don't you? Oh, mm. yes, I do. <laughs> and how to work roots. Oh Lord, ain't nothing like a good root. <laughs> Thank you so much. I mean, the most I didn't get to, but I, but we'll get to it at some point. One of the finest books I've ever read is The Ground Has Shifted. Wow. The Future of the Black Church in Post-Racial America. Ooh. I love this book. I recommend it. Buy it. Read it. Mm. And consider all of the issues that Dr. Fluker raises about the possibility of post-racialism. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you still believe that's possible, mm -hmm. but I want to leave our listeners with the mysticism, the conjuring, the storytelling, and the remembering. Thank you for everything, Dr. 
blessings on you. And you also. And and Donnie, what a wonderful, wonderful uh, opportunity to meet you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We want to leave you with a few reflections from our conversation with Dr. Walter Fluker. One of the things he said really struck a note with me. Um, I love to claim my mysticism and my Gullah culture, but I've become very westernized in the way that I hide grief. I have no options for lament, much like the culture that I'm surrounded by. And his discussion of the grief ritual with the Dagara people was really quite astounding. Yeah, that, that conversation was uh, eye-opening. And uh, his story about seeing his father resonated with me uh, also, Barbara, as I also have experienced grief. I guess the question is for our listeners in the connection and the reflection that I would encourage us to experience and to look into is what trauma, what healing, what hurt, what pain that we need to be healed from could benefit from the practice of our own unique grief ritual. Yes, and how can the organized religious institutions, the churches, and the places where we assemble to finally shed some of our arrogance, how can they help us to grieve, to lament, to begin to get free? Now, all of that was quite amazing. What are you grieving, those of you who are listening? What are you grieving that you don't know that you're grieving? How will you process that grief? Thanks so much for being with us today. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.